Let's pray one more time together before we get into God's Word. Lord, I ask your Spirit be upon us and upon myself as we get into this last passage of Mark chapter 13. It has been wonderful, Lord, uh, to see what you have had to say in this discourse to your disciples and to us today. And I pray once again, Lord, that um, this would be edifying and encouraging uh, to our hearts and applicable to our lives as we consider the future. Uh, You are so good and kind and faithful, God, and let us see all of these things as expressions of that toward us so that you'd be glorified even during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark 13. And as we're getting there, we understand that in life, we make preparations for many things, any number of things that come up in life that we have to prepare for. When COVID hit almost three years ago now, those first couple months, you might recall that some people started preparing, stocking up on water and supplies and food. And even after a while, um, pushing aside other people for things like toilet paper. Students, you young students who are with us today, you have final exams coming up this week, most of you. Preparations are required. You've got to gather up all your stuff and your notes and your quizlets and your study guides and your books and get cracking, right? You must prepare for the coming of those final exams. On the sports front, uh, NBA players, back to the, the COVID time, um, when that hit, the players were in the middle of their basketball season. And they had to to stop it because of health concerns. And the player rep for the NBA said that they would need three to four weeks to prepare for starting up the basketball season again. Imagine that. Almost a whole month uh, just to prepare to play basketball. And uh, just a a couple years back, a dear unnamed lady in our church, uh, she started preparing a birthday present for my wife, whose birthday is in March, uh, shortly after Christmas. And so uh, preparations are a reality of life, something that we we do, and um, it's just uh, one of those things. We prepare for things that we anticipate are going to happen, things that we think or hear or know are coming. And I'm here to tell each one of us this morning that Jesus Christ is coming back. He is returning as he promised. There's no question about it. The Bible tells us of his life, his ministry, um, as the song that we sang earlier so just succinctly summed up. And he was tried, he was beaten, he was scourged, he was executed on a cross. And it says that he was buried and he was literally bodily resurrected from the grave on the third day. And then he ascended into heaven. All those things happened in real time around 2,000 years ago. And just as real as all those things are going to be his return. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah King is coming back. He said so. And so the two angels at his ascension in Acts chapter 1 
said that he's coming back in just the same way as you, disciples, have watched him go into heaven. The New Testament writers, as we saw last week, they say the same thing. Apostle John, Revelation 1-7, says, writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. So it is to be. Amen. Clearly, God wants us to know, and he wants us to be ready. He wants us to be prepared. Jesus tells the disciples and the ensuing generations of believers, and everyone in general today, especially in our text, be on the alert, be ready to meet your maker, your God, your king. Our sermon series title has been Being Prepared for Jesus' Return. Today's part four. Next week we're going to do a kind of a, a sum up excursus on eschatology, which is outside of the text. But um, today is part four of our series. Next week we'll conclude it. But the subtitle today is the same as last week. The second coming is coming. And if we want to add anything to that, it's simply be prepared. Be prepared. So let's read the text. It is Mark chapter 13. And we've done a lot of standing and sitting and standing and sitting. But if you're still able to do that one more time, let us stand as uh, I read our passage for this morning in Mark chapter 13. And it's verses 28 to 37. If you're unable to stand, that is totally understood. Mark 13, starting in verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you... I say to all, be on the alert. Please be seated. So after letting his disciples know the signs of his coming, and the ultimate sign being the sign of he himself appearing in the clouds and coming in the sky, literally descending with great power and Shekinah glory, and Remember from last week, accompanying him will be all his elect, all his chosen ones, believers of all times, of all dispensations, Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation period. Jesus says, after that, some explanations and exhortations as he concludes this discourse on the Mount of Olives, thus the Olivet Discourse, and... Once again, this is Tuesday of Passion Week. 
So we have two simple points today. It's in your uh, bulletin there. Um, concluding explanations, and then to close, commands to be watchful. So verses 28 to 32, I do want to get to the urgency of what Jesus says in the last part, but there's some explanation that needs to be done in these first few verses. And once again in verse 28, Jesus gives a, a bit of a quick lesson here. He says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. Okay, the greatest of teachers gives his disciples a, a mini parable here. The fig tree, which the disciples would easily be able to picture in their minds. Simply, this tree gives the sign of summer when little leaves begin to appear on its tender branches. Okay, so you see those leaves budding on the branches? You know, that means summer will be here soon. And Jesus says, even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. So likewise, Jesus says, when you see these things happening, right, these things, these things that he's just, just talked about in the, in the discourse, the birth pangs leading to the awful tribulation, the abomination of desolation, the supernatural cosmic events, when you see these things happening, they should recognize that his return is near. These are all signs that he is right at the door. But this ought to raise some questions in our minds because who is Jesus speaking to specifically here? The disciples, the 12 disciples, right? Um, So the question is, did these things that he's described happen in their lifetime? And this also leads to his next sobering, significant statement. Hold that thought. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So the question that should arise in our minds as we read this text and study this text is who is Jesus referring to when he says this generation? And also even when he says you, if not the disciples themselves, because that's who he's talking to. So, especially regarding this generation and just the whole Olivet Discourse, the interpretation of this throughout church history has been much, much debated, um, even controversial, and even somewhat perplexing. There's lots of arguing and a lot of ink spilt over who Jesus is referring to when he says this generation. Clear to everyone is this, okay, whoever or whichever generation of people he's talking about, the Lord is saying that they will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, there's a certain group of people who will live through the events and signs of his coming that he has just spoken of in this Olivet Discourse, who will not die until these events and signs have happened. Okay, so first... Let me address the you question. Most times when we see this in the Gospels or in the Old Testament or whatever in in the Bible, we understand it as plainly as possible, right? If Jesus or whoever else is speaking and he says, I tell you this, or they will persecute you, etc., etc., he's referring to the person or the people that he's talking to right there, right? That's the plain, straightforward sense. But you need to to note this. Sometimes we see in Scripture... When Jesus is speaking to certain people, and when he says, you, 
the understanding is that they represent another group of people, okay, a future group. It's what's known as, my seminary professor, Dr. Vlock, said, the transgenerational you. The transgenerational you. And it's called that because it goes beyond the current generation of people that he's talking to. Okay, in this case, the disciples. The you that he speaks of refers beyond, trans, just them. Let me give you an example. If you want to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is just one example among many in in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Lord God uses you in this transgenerational way for Israel. Starting in verse 1, he says, Now, O Israel... Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. So as you keep reading in in Deuteronomy 4, he's speaking specifically to that generation of people. Deuteronomy happens shortly before they enter into the promised land, right? And so he's talking to Israel. But then as you read the chapter, you see that God gave words that go beyond that current generation and extends beyond to other generations of Israel, future generations that will experience the dispersion, um, national distress, and the restoration of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, he says, in the latter days, okay? For example, you you go on down to uh, verse 27 of chapter 4. And note the yous here. He's not referring to that current generation of Israelites of of Moses' day, even though he says you. Look at verse 27. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, And you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. See those those predictions that I just read to you are predictions concerning national Israel that will impact subsequent generations, not the specific generation that he's speaking to in the moment. what, What I just read to you in verses 27 to 31 covers hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years later, the latter days. And so hopefully that's, that's uh, understood, what we, we mean when we, we say the transgenerational you. Uh, I'll, you can just jot these passages down, but Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6 is another example of that. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. Leviticus 26. If you read verse 1, he's talking to a current generation, and then you read verses 17 to 45, and then he starts talking about beyond. It extends beyond just the current people. Jesus, in in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, same thing. 
And so uh, hopefully that's clear. So when Jesus says you, going back to Mark chapter 13, and he's talking to the 12 disciples, um, they are representatives. And so he's saying that this goes beyond, beyond you. So let's look at this generation next. Hey, this generation, because people get tripped up by this, and understandably so. He says uh, once again there in verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So there's three main views about what this generation uh, is referring to. Uh, The first one is the most plain, straightforward way to understand that. It's the generation to whom Jesus is speaking right there. As in the generation of people living in Jesus' and the disciples' time. That seems to be the, the most you know, literal understanding of this text. Many theologians believe that all or most of what Jesus foretold of here in the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in the temple destruction of A.D. 70, which would have been within the generation of the disciples, right? It's like 40 years within. The problem, the problem with that, okay, and I've said this before, even though that temple destruction uh, was was very terrible. It was, it was, it was awful uh, what happened there and what, what uh, Rome and Titus and, and just the uh, sacking of, of Jerusalem and the, and the, the temple was. Um, it was not what Jesus speaks of in verse 19. He says, the tribulation, right? Those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Right? It's an unprecedented, unique awful, horrific time that Jesus is talking about. And then um, the abomination of desolation, which we went over a few Sundays ago. None of that took place. None of that took place uh, uh, on AD 70. Nor did the cosmic upheavals that we, we looked at last week in verses 24 and 25 happen. Okay? The sun did not darken and the moon did not, not give its light. The stars didn't fall from the heavens. The powers that in the heavens weren't shaken nor did Jesus return in the clouds. See, those who interpret these things as having already happened in the first century, just so you know, real quickly, they're called, these, these theologians are called uh, preterists. Preterists, it, it, that word means gone by or past. So they believe that uh, all of these things have already been fulfilled, and I think I mentioned our, you know, he's in heaven now, but our dear R.C. Sproul, and his son, and uh, another theologian named Greg Bonson, another guy named Hank Hanegraaff, who used to call himself the Bible Answer Man, um, other guys who I respect, and I, I, I have their commentaries, I use them, William Hendrickson, R.C.H. Lenski, R.T. France, D.A. Carson, okay, all these guys would fall under that um, just uh, view of, of preterism. So the second main view... And so I don't think that one is correct uh, for very clear and, to me, obvious reasons. But number two is um, translating or defining the word generation as race or type. Because that Greek word can sometimes um, be defined that way. So in that case, this generation would mean the Jewish race or the Jewish people or nation as a whole. So he's talking about the, the race of Jewish people will not pass away until these things take place. And um, J.C. Ryle, 
believes that he he's written wholeheartedly that 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 that's what his um, belief is Donald English and and others, but um, it doesn't seem to me to fit the context of what Jesus is saying here, because he's using that phrase this generation in terms of when something is to take place and not a, a type of people. There's a definite time limit that the Lord is assuring of here. Uh, for the fulfillment of these things that he's foretold, that this generation, whoever that is, is going to experience. So I don't think that that's correct. And the third main view is this. It's the people living at the time when the actual events of the end times happens. The people living at the time when the actual events that Jesus foretells of here in the discourse actually happens. So without getting overly bogged down with details of, of... that, um, where there's much debate, even amongst those of us who, are, who see this um, as futuristic, okay? um, it seems like Jesus is using this generation in that same transgenerational way. He's speaking of a particular generation of people, but not the people of his current generation. And since the events he foretells of have not happened yet, um, he's referencing it in a very broad way. A generation in the future who will not pass away until all these things take place. And so, sorry, we have to identify and, and define all these phrases and terms, but all these things are the events of the great tribulation that lead up to his return. And I see pass away, that Greek word there, as, again, more general, more broad than, than some do. Most see it as uh, death and judgment and destruction, but I, I see it as more of a, a coming to an end. coming to an end rather than being destroyed or judged. So to sum it all up, when Jesus says this generation here, most likely it seems he's talking about the future generation of people who are going to be living during the tribulation end times. That generation will not pass away until all these apocalyptic signs and events have taken place. Okay, so he assures, he says, truly, I say to you, these things are going to happen. And then I will come. Right? Verse 31, he says, even though heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. Even though the, the whole created universe, which has existed for millennia, goes away, passes away, um, even that is not as stable as the words of Christ especially these words in the Olivet Discourse, predicting these extraordinary future events, especially the certainty of his return. So we remember the the verse in Isaiah, right? Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. It is guaranteed, guaranteed. Having said all that, verse 32. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Okay, so that, that, can, that word there, but, connects the truth of what he has just said with what he's about to say in conjunction with his return. No one knows the day or hour of his coming. And there's going to be signs, right? Leaves on the fig tree last week, right? The clackety shoes heard coming down the hallway. But absolutely no one knows except God the Father himself the exact day or the exact hour of Christ's coming. Not even the Son, Jesus, knew. 
And of course, this has been yet another cause for great theological debate and arguments. At least on the surface, it seems to conflict with the deity of Christ. If he is the Son of God, he's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, wouldn't he know this information? And the explanation is that this speaks to the full humanity of Jesus. While he was on earth, truly God, truly man. And there was a, a voluntary restriction of knowledge that was in accordance with the miracle of his incarnation. Okay, so we all know and love, I hope, Philippians 2, verse 5. It says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So part of that emptying himself, that kenosis, um, which is adding on the fullness of humanity, the fullness of humanness. He gave up his divine rights and prerogatives that he had throughout all eternity. Okay, this is part of what all of that means. And you might recall from Luke 2, verses, um, Luke 2, verse 52, it indicates in that verse that Jesus grew in wisdom, okay, meaning that he learned and he gained knowledge as he aged. And so as we hold those two truths in tension, okay, just like a lot of things in Scripture, right? Jesus in his earthly life had limited knowledge of certain things, okay, like the time of his coming. And yet he was still God, still deity. Okay, fully man, fully God. So we hold those two things concurrently. And just uh, by the way, surely... Um, in Christ's ascension and his exaltation in heaven, sitting now at the right hand of the Father, at the throne of God, he knows all things, including the timing of his return. I, I believe that's the case. So let me give you an implication of, of all this. Okay? The Lord didn't say, not even the Son knows, uh, just to give us um, cause to scratch our heads in a theological conundrum. Okay, the most significant question that comes out of this is, why would Jesus not know when he would return? Okay, besides the, just the emptying that, that I just told you about. Well, I want you to consider this, uh, this thought, this implication from the context of the discourse here. Okay, Jesus was, in a way, helping the disciples and helping us. Perhaps him revealing that not even he himself as the Son of the Father, knows the exact day or hour of his return, this would help us restrain our, our vain curiosity uh, to bind us to what he said, what his word says, and to stimulate us to be prepared and vigilant and eager to meet him at any time, at any moment. It's incredible how many people, and um, professing to be Christians, and some of them are just uh, parts of cults and pseudo-Orthodox streams and groups. Despite Jesus' clear words here that nobody knows, not even the angels of heaven or himself, uh, these people think that they can predict the day of Christ's return and the end of the world, right? I, I mentioned some of these in, in the past, but Jehovah's Witnesses, hey, Charles Taze Russell, 
He predicted it was, it was going to happen in the year 1874. The Seventh-day Adventists, or at least the precursors, okay, William Miller predicted specifically October 22nd, 1844. That, that was surely going to be the day. He, he did all the calculations and he studied and uh, all the numbers and added them all up. October 22nd, 1844. Uh, obviously, it didn't happen. And that day became known as the Great Disappointment. And so some from his group splintered, and they started the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Um, Later, Hal Lindsey, uh, theologian, author, he predicted it was going to happen no later than 1988. I think this was in the 80s when when he said that. Jerry Falwell, in 1999 said that Christ would come within the next 10 years, for sure. And lastly, Harold Camping, who I I did mention before, but he claimed specifically May 21st, 2011. That was going to be the the day of the rapture. And October 21st of that same year, the end of the world was going to come. So Jesus knows, God knows our temptations he knows of our vanity and our tendency to get completely carried away with these types of things. How wise and thoughtful is our Lord to just tell us point blank. Nobody knows, okay? not even me at this time. So to quote uh, Pastor Carlton Wynn, he writes, quote, If the angels, so near to God and surpassing man in power and wisdom, cheerfully obey him while remaining ignorant of when Christ will return, How much more should we trust him in all things? If the incarnate Son of God went to the cross looking forward to his exaltation without knowing the time of its consummation, how much more should we receive in faith whatever degree or length of suffering God has planned for us until Christ brings us home to glory? And most of all, how joyfully should we welcome each day knowing it could be the day we've been waiting for ever since God welcomed us in Christ, end quote. So that implicational thought leads us directly to Jesus' very reason why they must be watchful for his coming. And so this is our second and last point today. Commands, commands to be watchful in verses 33 to 37. This is a very straightforward section. It's application of the discourse Okay, that comes at the end of it. And verse 33, the exhortation there is to take heed, watch out, and keep on the alert. Okay? For you do not know when the appointed time will come. Right? I want you to notice the urgency of Jesus' commands. Okay, since no one knows the day or the hour, he gives not one, okay, but two commands here. Both of them present imperatives, which means continual vigilance. Continual vigilance. Our friend J.C. Ryle called it perpetual preparedness. I practiced that a few times just to make sure I didn't foul up those P's. But this always alert mindset, a perpetually prepared lifestyle, is necessary. Why? Because the time of Jesus' return has not been revealed. It's uncertain. That verb... Agrup neo, it expresses watchfulness and wakefulness. It's the opposite of listlessness, okay? The opposite of listlessness. 
and expresses alertness. And look, Jesus follows with a command three times in these last verses of chapter 13. Keep on the alert. Be on the alert. It's a different verb. Literally, it means to be watchful or to refrain from physical sleep. Okay, refrain from physical sleep. That's the literal. But later, that word came to be used in in the moral or religious sense. It calls us to be on the alert, to be in a constant state of readiness, and it denotes being keenly, intensely heedful of trouble or danger. Others might be sleeping or unsuspicious, but not the one who is prepared. It's like being the only one awake when hearing that noise in the house in the middle of the night. That's a good picture of being spiritually attentive. And it calls us to be watchful and ready to respond to external influences that are ungodly. It calls us to be focused and alerted to the winds of temptation within our own hearts. Hey, watch out for just the direction of, of, of your own sinful temptations and watch out for overt attacks of evil. Um, a while back, just a few weeks ago, I saw uh, this short video of a lady um, giving warnings to people, especially to other women, to be aware when going back to your parked car, like when you're done shopping or you know done grocery shopping and you're, you're walking back to your car in the parking lot. Um, she, she made this video to help women be aware that there are criminals around and they do sometimes very sly, sneaky, tricky stuff to rob you or worse. Okay, for example, um, they put a grocery cart behind your car right after you get into your car and start your car. And so you're in your car and you're about to back out, but there's a, you notice a grocery cart right behind. So you, what do you do? You open the door and go out, and that's when he gets you, right? Carjacking, just steal your car, or just whatever, kidnapping or whatever, the bad situation there. Um, so this is, uh, she, she had a few other examples, but uh, this is a warning to, to everyone, but maybe especially to our young, dear folks who are just um, starting to learn to drive. Uh, don't be so distracted all the time on your cell phone, right? I see people all the time crossing the street, like with their head down, you know, cr- uh, across the, the, the crosswalk on the street there. Um, and people all the time in the parking lots looking at their phones as they get into their cars. And so um, believers, we need to be aware of our own sin and temptations within and of attacks of evil and assaults by the devil from without. Okay, listen to the, the parallel passage in Luke 21. Luke 21 is where the Olivet Discourse is also found according um, and also Matthew 24. But Luke 21, verses 34 and 35 says this. Be on guard. Yet another word that Jesus uses. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation. Okay, that's wastefulness, right? Wasting time and just, um, just frivolous things. Not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. And then in verse 36, he says again, but keep on the alert at all times, 
praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So beyond just an attitude of attentiveness, that command to be ready, to be alert, to not be weighted down, it's, it's, it's the idea of action, okay, to be active. Believers are to wait expectantly and also to work expectantly. We are to take actions as we await the return of the Lord, okay, rapture or otherwise. And um, Noah is a good picture of that. Noah, um, in anticipation of the great flood that God warned him about, Noah, he worked, 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 he worked on that ark, that huge box of a boat. What a great picture of expectancy. Okay, Noah didn't just have the attitude of attentiveness. He had the actions of attentiveness. He, he thought God's judgment is coming. He, he told me, I, I believe what God said. I better do what God says. I best get to work right now. It's like 100 years of this, right? And so that's the point of the next mini parable that he gives in verse 34. Okay, some know this as the, the parable of the house owner. It's very short, verse 34. He says, It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Okay, those slaves, those servants... They've been given their orders, and they need to be found busy at the tasks and duties that they've been blessed with. Even the doorkeeper is told to keep his eyes peeled. Um, verses 35 and 36, that little parable is expanded, and it, it, it overlaps with the admonition. Hey, the slaves don't know when the master is coming home. could be at any one of the four watches of the night. Right? He says, in the evening there, Okay, so the four watches of the night. The evening time is 6 to 9 p.m. Midnight, okay, that's the watch of 9 p.m. to midnight, and so on, right? Um, when the rooster crows is midnight to 3 a.m., and the morning would be 3 to 6 in the morning. And so any one of those times, okay, he could come back at any time unexpectedly, suddenly. Okay, when the Lord says, I'm coming quickly, it doesn't necessarily mean like, He's coming, like, tomorrow. It just means he's coming suddenly, okay? Maybe at a time that you don't expect. And so this is like in my childhood, and some of you, if you can remember uh, that far back, when our parents went out for dinner function in the evening, they would do that every once in a while. My dad was a professor. And so they have, you know, university stuff that they needed to go to. They wouldn't tell us what time they were returning, me and my siblings. And so we'd need to be on the lookout, Okay, because, of course, we'd be watching TV or playing video games or staying up way too late, uh, doing things that we weren't supposed to be doing as kids tend to. And so our ears were perked up to when we'd hear that, that car pull up in the driveway. They were the, the sound of the car door being shut. That was the, the next thing. They were getting closer. The sounds of the footsteps of the parents on the sidewalk. The last, last moment was that key hitting the, the doorway. Okay, some of you young folks maybe can uh, relate to that a little more recently. But uh, that's, the, that's the way it was, right? So in Jesus' mini parable, the slaves are not to be found sleeping, okay, idle, listless, wasted, unprepared for the master's return. And, and I think it's obvious that, once again, 
Um, the point is not that, the, that believers, we as believers, should never physically sleep. But certainly, we're not to be spiritually asleep, spiritually listless and drowsy. Okay, we're not to be out of service, as some signs, when, when something's out of order, right? It says out of service. That should not be us. Warren Wearsby says, quote, Like the householder in the story, before our Lord went from us back to heaven, he gave each of us work to do. He expects us to be faithful while he's gone and to be working when he returns. Take heed, watch, and pray is his admonition. End quote. So, um, some have noted, uh, and, and biographers of John Calvin's life, towards the end there, when his friends wanted him to work less for the sake of his declining health. He was um, practically on his deathbed. He was sick for, for a while before he died. Um, but he would often reply to them when they, they said, take it easy, work less. He said, would you, ha- would you have my master find me idle? He was working all the way until the end. So in the last verse here, Jesus says, What I say to you, I say to all. I say to all, be on the alert. Jesus expands this command to everyone. And so I want to conclude by giving you four responses. Okay, four responses uh, that we should have um, knowing of Jesus' return. Okay, what a privilege what, what an amazing, incredible revelation this is to us that he's coming. And so four uh, responses here of, of knowing of Jesus' return. The first one should be worship. Worship. Um, God has given us a way uh, to escape this end-time judgment, okay, which he's taken pains to describe to us. And Jesus gives out these admonitions, as I said last week, out of love for sinners. And if you're not a believer today, uh, this is held out to you. He offers his free gift of salvation through faith in him, through the work that he did on the cross for you as a sinner. If, if, you, don't, if you don't know him, this is a call for you to repent of your sins and believe in Christ alone as the Savior who died for you, to receive his forgiveness and eternal life. This is God's call to you. God's calling you to come to him, to submit to Christ as your Lord, and to live in gratitude and worship and praise before him. And one day, one day, you can look forward to your worship on earth becoming worship in heaven. And this is a cause for worship and rejoicing for us believers today. Revelation 4, 9 through 11 says, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Amen. That's going to be our our song, our praise in heaven. So the second response besides worship is our walk, is our walk, our obedience, our obedience. Jesus tells us in the Olivet Discourse to be ready, ready for his coming. could happen any time. And so we are to live in such a way that we're not ashamed of our behavior. 
And it was brought up during our care group time, this uh, precious verse from 2 Peter. 2 Peter verse three, or chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Listen. Peter writes, but the day of the, the one who's listening in the Olivet Discourse, right? One of them. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Hey, we're called to holy living and godliness. And you can jot this verse down. Hebrews 10 uh, verses 35 to 38. Uh, I, won't, I won't read it. Hebrews 10, 35 to 38. Uh, great passage there reminding us once again of our lives needing to be conducted in a holy way knowing that his coming is, is near. The third response besides our worship and walk is our witness. Our witness What do I mean by that? I mean our gospel proclamation. We believers are privileged to be the bearer of good news, of salvation, of eternal life, of hope and peace and forgiveness. We are the ones who bear that message. And it's available to all through Jesus Christ alone. And we must be reaching those who don't yet believe and as we talked about in Sunday school earlier, this is a great season, um, this Christmas season, to offer and to invite and plead for people to turn to God and be saved from his coming wrath. Okay, this is our, our third response. And lastly, we should respond with our works. With our works. This maybe overlaps a little bit with our obedience, but um, I mean service. Okay, our service, our, our deeds. All believers must be diligent and active, carrying out God's will and doing good works. Titus chapter 2, this beloved passage here, Titus 2 verses 11 to 14, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We need to be fervent in our service, in our ministry, in our in our giving of ourselves to others, this is the season of giving, right? Uh, remembering and celebrating that, that God gave us his one and only son. Um, this is where the tradition of, of giving gifts uh, comes from, and we are to take that spirit and that truth into the world. So um, I want to remind everyone once again, too, that uh, and we discussed this in our care group on Wednesday, but we believers are going to come before God and, and Christ in um, a judgment. Uh, we're going to be judged as well. And it's 2 Corinthians 5.10, the Bema Seat. Uh, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And I remind you, this is not a wrathful judgment. This is not ultimate condemnation. 
and our works do not determine uh, a believer's, a true believer's acceptance into heaven. But it will be the platform where we show what we did with the gifts that God gave to us as Christians. So maybe good questions to ask yourself this morning. How did we love with our new hearts that, that God planted in us in Christ? Um, how did we love with these hearts that have been changed to truly love Jesus and to love other people? And what did we do to show that love? How did we spend our time, our energy, our money, our resources? Hey, what, what sins did we kill? What lust of the flesh did we mortify as we're commanded to? And lastly, what goals and priorities did we set in the life that God gave to us to bring glory to Christ, our Savior and Lord? And just a, a few questions that we can ask in light of um, all of this, all of these responses um, that, that we should have in light of our knowledge of Christ's coming. I love what St. Augustine said, quote, He who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who affirms it as far off, nor is it he who says it is near. It is he who, whether it be far or near, awaits it with sincere faith, steadfast hope, and fervent love, end quote. We want to be prepared, dear Faith Bible Church family, for Jesus' return individually, together, as a church body. And so we've taken four parts. Next week, we're going to conclude with our, uh, part five. Uh, we've been exhorted specifically, um, after a bit of explanation today, um, exhorted to always be prepared for his coming and persevering once again, both in faith and faithfulness, to the end. R.A. Torrey said, The imminent return of our Lord is the great Bible argument for a pure, unselfish, devoted, unworldly, active life of service. May we pray that God would grant us uh, the desire and the action to do that for him. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that as the hymn writer Charles Tillman wrote, that all of us, upon hearing these things, would be ready to speak, ready to warn, ready over souls to yearn, ready in life, ready in death, ready for his return. Ready to go, ready to stay, ready my place to fill, and ready for service, lowly or great, ready to do his will. God, thank you for giving us your word once again and your promises and the assurance of all of it coming to pass. And thank you for being with us as we strive to fight the good fight of faith and continue and persevere all the way to the end for your glory's sake. Thank you, God, for Christ and that the second coming is coming and your urgent words to us that we'd be watchful and ready for it's in his strong name we pray amen